This talk by Joan Sutherland called Allegiance to the Most Beloved was given on March 22, 2013 at the Vernal Equinox Retreat in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So we meet together at an auspicious time in our tradition, um, right after the Vernal Equinox, which everywhere all over the place is obviously a time of of new beginning, of spring returning, um, and also uh, in, a, in a time in the, cal- in the lunar calendar called Moon Almost Full. And it was a time when um, divinations were done so that people could check in to see, be able to identify what the new thing coming in was. So for me, I kind of think of this weekend as a giant divination to see what the new thing is going to be. Um, and I, I wanted to start with a, a quote from Zhuangzi, who was one of the great early Taoist philosophers. And he, um, he started something that, that he, he said by saying, I'm going to try speaking some reckless words, and I want you to try to listen recklessly. Mm-hmm. So this all begins in a time of restriction. Um, a time when I was uh, very ill, and, and as I described to some of you last fall, it was a time when there was nothing I could do but lie down on the dark earth. Um, out of that, being able to do nothing but lie down on the dark earth, some kind of amazing things happen. And I talk about it at all because it's, it's, a, it's an example of exactly the kind of... Um, practice and approach to the way that I'm going to be laying out tonight. Again, a bit of theory, a bit of foundational philosophy, uh, a couple of really good uh, founding myths, and a few stories and poems, and then um, tomorrow we'll begin to work with all of this and work with it through the koans and in other ways as well. So, Um, As we often say, when you lie down and shut up and stop wiggling, things start happening if you really listen. You start being able to hear voices that are ordinarily drowned out by the cacophony of our daily lives. And things start walking towards you. And if you greet them respectfully, they will sit down with you and tell tell you their stories. And that's what began to happen to me. And I found that after 15 years of teaching pretty full out, I suddenly and for the first time understood what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm slow. Um, So now I'm going to make you suffer through hearing about it. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, What really happened in that time of restriction was that I saw that I no longer had profligate energy to fling about all over the place. Um, And that's where this idea and the name of this retreat came from, the, the idea of allegiance to the most beloved. When you can't fling your energy around profligately anymore, um, you have to figure out, I think, what the most beloved is and stay with that and turn your all your attention and what energy you have toward that. And in the beginning that can feel like a kind of loss, but over time it begins to feel clarifying uh, and deepening and quite powerful. So the question that runs over the whole weekend, and I want to say right at the beginning, is for each of us to consider what is our most beloved And the answer to that, you might have something that comes up quickly right away. Um, It's probably not that. Even if you think you know what it is, it's probably not that. So what I want to invite you to do over the course of the weekend is to keep, keep asking that question. Keep company with that question. What is the most beloved? And every time you think you land on something, see if there's something underneath that, and then something underneath that, and underneath that, and see where you go with it where you start, and where you end up by the end of the weekend. So I'm going to be talking um, tonight and this weekend about how a way I think we can walk out to meet the Most Beloved and to receive the Most Beloved when she arrives. 
Um, in, in what I'm going to say, a lot of you will recognize many common things, many things that we've talked about before, but the way they're connected with each other and the, the kinds of patterns that are beginning to be made, I hope will be different and refreshing, even if some of the, the content is, is familiar. Um, I'm definitely understanding things differently. And things are coming into a kind of coherence that's new. So um, a couple of months ago, I was sitting in what I call my Ark House, which is a, a house um, on, the, on the water, um, on the Pacific Ocean, on the San Francisco Bay, actually. And it's made, as, as some houses are in that area, of a few small barges kind of stitched together, and the barges are locally called arcs. So that was the Ark House. And it, was, um, on a, it is on a boardwalk between a, a, a vast marsh full of birds and a place where a river runs into the San Francisco Bay. Um, so that was a pretty good place to lie down on the dark earth. Um, very healing place. And one day, as I was sitting by the water, I was reading a poem um, by Louise Gluck. And in it, she has an image, which I'll share with you. And this is part of a much longer poem. I'm really excerpting it a lot. And it was a, a, an image of the moon. In the window, the moon is hanging over the earth burning like a star and convincingly so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on earth. I move through the dark as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor in it. Tranquil and still, the day dawns. On market day, I go to the market with my lettuces. And that moon really came and got me. Because the question that arose in me immediately was, what does the moon make grow? And we know that it makes the tides swell and that plants actually grow more in the night, in in the moonlight than they do in the day and all of that. But what else? What does the moon make grow in the same way that the sun makes the animal and vegetable life grow? Um, Dreams, visions, meditation seems like a kind of lunar activity, things underground, um, things we can't see, things that are still in the dark. Uh, Is it possible that it's sometimes a force of unmaking in the way that the sun is sometimes a force of making in the world? So then I just got this um, rush of language. It's just a very long list but it was when I began to think about what does the moon make grow, this is what came rushing out of me, and um, I've come to call it the incantation of the lunar dharma. So in all of this, I know it's Friday night, and it's the end of a long week, and you're probably tired, and maybe you've come a great distance to be here. Just let all of this wash over you. Don't try to catch it or grasp onto it. Just like water, let it flow over you and see what happens. So here's the um, just raw, unedited incantation of the lunar dharma as it came to me in about five minutes. Stillness, silence, what happens in the dark, insubstantiality, transience, the dream, and darkenment, the great broken heart of the world, the bodhisattva's deliberate wound, being permeable, being marked, stained, and dyed. D-Y-E-D, dissolving, experiencing objectless devotion, not being certain, not knowing, unmaking, not naming, forgetting, putting down, interrupting the habits of heart-mind, interrupting karmic chains, subverting, letting go, taking the charge off questions, neither asserting nor defending, not seeking, not acquiring, not attaining, not exerting will. Stopping, sitting, resting, listening, wondering, being spontaneous, being surprised, surprising yourself, trusting, turning back, turning the light around, returning home, the turning word. Reversals of meaning as the blessing of poverty. Paradoxical identities as samsara is nirvana. The bare ground, the hazy moon, 
falling flowers, blue dragon's cave, dragon murmur in a withered tree, deep in the mountains, lost in the weeds, under the sea, riding the currents, leaning back against a tree older than the forest it stands in, lying down on the dark earth, seeing spring in the budless branches, opening the hand. Sound familiar? <laughs> it's the koan way. <laughs> I mean, it just utterly is. You know, it, that is just that is the deep stream of the koan way. Is this lunar dharma, this um, countercurrent? I began to think of it. This countercurrent to um, so much of of the way life seems to be. So much of the way we experience it. And I want to say right at the outset that that this lunar countercurrent um, is something that's really old, something much older than Buddhism. And um, these traditions, the traditions that that make up this this countercurrent that always exists in the world, um, take us back, connect us back to a time when um, we had a strong, everyday, natural, ordinary, daily life connection to these currents in the world. We could feel them. We were part of them. We didn't um, turn our backs on them. It was a time when, um, when women's voices were appreciated and when we still felt a strong moral claim of the non-human natural world upon us. And for a lot of us, I think, these are, these are values that still are meaningful to us, are meaningful to us again, um, things that we would like to stri- strengthen in our lives now. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think the possibility of this countercurrent stream of the Dharma is so strong, because it does put us in, in connection, direct connection, relationship with these very old um, values, these very old experiences in human life that do run counter to so much of what we see happening around us. Um, But again, I want to make clear that they're really, really old, and we can't in any way claim ownership of them, but we can claim allegiance to them. So if on the surface of things, on the surface of life, we have a tendency toward um, building and creating institutions and dogma and hierarchy and orthodoxy and all that kind of stuff. There's this underground stream that surfaces every once in a while, and then it submerges again. That's the stream I'm talking about, this um, lunar countercurrent. It's never going to be a mainstream tradition by its nature, But when it rises every once in a while to the surface, it brings with it the deep waters um, of those streams underneath and refreshes um, the surface, refreshes what's going on in the great making of the world. So it seems to me, as I've come to understand it, that the Chan Koan tradition, and for those of you who are new to us, Chan is the Chinese word that is pronounced Zen in Japanese, and it is where the koan tradition and where Zen originated um, in in China. Uh, and it's quite different than than um, anything that's happened since, in some ways. And and I really believe that that original Chan koan tradition, in particular, carries something very old and very precious. It's not identical with mainstream Buddhism. Um, and I, part of the preciousness of what it carries is that it's drawing on the deep springs of Taoism and shamanism that, um, that bubble together from that underground stream through the koans. It's not true of all of Chan. It's certainly not true of all of Zen. Um, both of them are completely capable of being yanked up to the surface and um, turned into the, into that part you know part of the mainstream um, and we saw sort of the 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 horrible culmination of that in the embrace by Zen in Japan of militarism and nationalism 
uh, in the early part of the 20th century leading up to World War II. So I, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, talk in color blocks and, and I don't want to do good and bad. Um, everything is capable of everything. But there is, I believe, in the Chan Koan tradition, um, th- there persists a tendency, a memory, a commitment, a life force within the koan tradition that has the possibility of connecting us back to these deep springs of, um, of human life. And I don't think our job is to reproduce that or to return there. We couldn't, even if we wanted to. I think our job is to sink wells now into that underground river in our time, in our ways and bring that water to the surface for the benefit of all. Because again, um, maybe I'm crazy, but I think there are things here that the world is thirsty for, this water, this deep water. And there is, a, there is an offering we can make um, to, to the world, to anyone who's interested. Okay, so let's step back into the founding story of Buddhism and to an encounter between two people that is just such a moment when the underground stream breaks the surface and changes everything. Uh, As many of you will well remember, when Siddhartha, uh, who became the Buddha, left the palace, he was practicing harsh austerities, so harsh that in the end he almost killed himself and um, literally um, was unconscious, was dying of starvation. Okay, so here's a little parenthetical thing, and I want to say, I'll give a warning, which is this, is this is the land of unfairly broad brush strokes, and I'm aware of that, so please receive it like that. This is, like, way too broad. But there's something here that, that um, I, I want to at least begin to talk about. Um, at that time, at the time that, that, that Siddhartha was almost starving himself with harsh austerities. The whole Eurasian con- continent, from Europe to China and including the Indian subcontinent, um, had, se- had spent several millennia diligently cutting itself off from these old traditions, from these old countercurrents, from the underground river. Um, and the, in the process, they had turned what had been part of the mainstream into something underground something that became a countercurrent. And um, unfortunately, the results were not great. And so by the time of the life of the Buddha, about 500 BCE, um, there was a, a time that the philosopher Karl Popper called the Axial Age, which was a time when across this Eurasian continent... Um, there were people who were saying, wait a minute, this is way too hard. Life can't be this violent and this brutal um, and this cruel. We've got to figure something else out. Um, we can't go on like this. And, and um, that, uh, that was part of the movement out of which Buddhism originally came. And a, a kind of quick shorthand for it is that the word nibbana, which is a Pali word that becomes nirvana in um, in Sanskrit, actually is um, etymologically related to a word that means the cooling that comes after a fever has broken, and that sort of sums up the whole the longing of the time. Let's break the fever. Let us find that coolness when we're not living in this fraught and difficult state. Um, and then something happened where it seemed to go too far in the other direction, in a way. Something kind of extreme happened, so that what began as an aversion to violence, an aversion to to cruelty and brutality, almost became an aversion to life. Oh, that resonates, yeah? Yeah. Um, And so let's go right back to Siddhartha practicing those harsh austerities. One way we can think about that is that he was enacting in himself, in his own body, this great axial movement, this desire to get away from what was so unsatisfactory about life, but then pushing it too far and almost killing himself, almost destroying his body, as if he brought the fight inside of himself, you know? 
um, the brutality of the age became, was introverted into his into his practice. Um, okay, so there's the Buddha lying on the ground unconscious, having introverted the entire axial age <laughs> paradigm into his own <laughs> into his own life, um, and knocking himself out with it. I told you it was broad brush strokes. Um, meanwhile, in a nearby town, there's a woman named Sujata. And she has a dream one night. And the dream tells her that she should take the, the milk of a 1,000 cows and feed it to 500 cows and feed that to 250 and so on, all the way down. And if anybody's a mathematician, you know it doesn't work, but that's the story. Um, and to, and to end, she would end up with this bowl of very, very rich milk. And she should mix some rice in with it and take this bowl of rice milk out into the forest. No explanation given. Sujata is this older rhythm. Sujata is this older way of being where when you're given a dream like that and you have no idea what it means, you say, okay, <laughs> and she does it. And off she goes into the forest having performed this, this operation and created this rich food. And, um, and she finds the Buddha unconscious and feeds him and restores him to life and it's that gift, it's Sujata's gift, that makes it possible for him to go sit under the tree and to get up from that tree a day later as the Buddha. Um, so th- this is um, Sujata's gift, Sujata's blessing on him. And it's a moment where the undercurrent, the, the underground stream erupts into the daylit world, and um, here we are, twenty five hundred years later. You know, still being affected by that gift, still receiving the benefit of that gift because it made everything else possible. When um, Siddhartha had regained his strength by taking Sujata's gift and breaking his fast, he went down to a stream near the tree he would sit under, and he had he took the bowl that Sujata had given him, and threw it into the stream. And he said, if this bowl floats upstream, today I will attain enlightenment. And lo and behold, the bowl floats upstream. Um, To me, the deep meaning of that moment is that what Sujata's gift made possible was his being, being able to enter that countercurrent here was this stream, this rushing torrent coming down out of the mountains. Um, and I think of it as the, the, you know, the great s- stream of doing and being and becoming and birth and death and, and old age and death and decay and rebirth. And this endless making and having happen and, um, and stuff going on. And what he was doing was throwing that bowl against that vast current of becoming and doing and hoping it would go up the river against all of that to the still source and rest there, which is sort of what happened except for the Naga king who intercepted it and put it on his shelf along with the seven other bowls of seven previous Buddhas that had also done the same thing. But anyway... (laughs) Um, okay, but that sense of wanting to, to, to go against that torrent. And um, Annie Dillard in, in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek has exactly the same moment. So she writes, If the landscape reveals one certainty, it is that the extravagant gesture is the very stuff of creation. After the one extravagant gesture of creation in the first place, the universe has continued to deal exclusively in extravagances, flinging intricacies and colossi down eons of emptiness, heaping profusions on profligacies with ever-fresh vigor. The whole show has been on fire from the word go. I come down to the water to cool my eyes, but everywhere I look I see fire. That which isn't flint is tinder, and the whole world sparks and flames. <coughs> so, um, Shakyamuni and Annie Dillard have been in conversation over the centuries because what 
happens pretty soon after these events happen is the Buddha gives the fire sermon. And he uses exactly the same imagery that Annie Dillard does. Um, And it's a kind of turning point where, again, we've stepped out of the lunar countercurrents and back into something else. So he was speaking to a group of, um, of fire worshippers. I, I wonder if that's really true, if they were just doing pujas, you know, they were just doing fire ceremonies. I don't know. But anyway, he gave this sermon, and um, I've excerpted it down and turned it into another kind of incantation, and as you're listening, you might compare it to the lunar dharma incantation. So this is what the Buddha said in the fire sermon. Monks, the all is a flame. What all is a flame? The eye is a flame. Forms are a flame. Consciousness of the eye is a flame. Contact at the eye is a flame. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the eye, experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of delusion. A flame, I tell you, with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. The ear is a flame. Sounds are a flame. The nose is a flame. Aromas are a flame. The tongue is a flame. Flavors are a flame. The body is a flame. Tactile sensations are a flame. The intellect is a flame. Ideas are a flame. Seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple grows disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, and whatever is experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, with that too he grows disenchanted. He grows disenchanted with the body, disenchanted with tactile sensations. He grows disenchanted with the intellect, disenchanted with ideas. Disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, he is fully released. He discerns that birth is depleted, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There is nothing further for this world. So that's saying the only way to deal with this world on fire is to get out. That weariness with the fire, that weariness with the, the relentlessness of life led to an assumption that all of life is like this. The all is a flame, right? It's always burning, and it's only like this. And because it's always like this and only like this, the only thing we can do is get out. From the perspective of the lunar countercurrents, from the perspective of the lunar dharma, there's something else. There's another way of looking at this. There's an understanding that the problem is not that it's all like this all the time, and so all we can do is get away from it. The problem is that something has been denied. Something has been left out. And that the cool moisture of that something could bring balance to the fire. So the move is in instead of out. The move is toward instead of away from. This isn't a mistake made only by people a long time ago and very far away. We make this mistake every single time we collapse out of our lives into meditation or into a retreat, and we expect that meditation or that retreat to heal us from the frantic pace of our, the rest of our lives. Um, when we think that meditation or a retreat is an escape from our lives, when we ask it to carry the entire burden of solving the problem of our lives, Um, when we keep it somehow separate and pure, not tainted by the problems of our lives, which um, I always find is a sure signal to the coyotes to start transgressing the borders. 
So instead, you know, we can understand meditation and retreat and all of the things we do in this way as a place not where we escape to, but a place where we refresh and reground so that we can learn to bring the hermitage with us so that we don't have to escape to the hermitage, but we can carry it with us and offer it to the world. This um, countercurrent dharma agrees with some of the critique of the world that, that's in the fire sermon and things like it. But we definitely don't agree with the proposed fix. Um, we don't agree with the escape. Because if you formulate the problem as everything's on fire all the time and there's nothing else, and you formulate the solution as therefore we must get away, in both directions, the world is abandoned. In both directions, either we succumb to the difficulties of the world or we leave the world open to the depredations of people filled with greed and, um, and aggression, or we escape, we go away, we enter into our own separate little happy place. You know, either way, we're abandoning the world. And that cannot, cannot be what practice is about. So if it's not about either of those things, if it's not A or B, what's C? What's the third thing? What's the other possibility here? And that is, as I've said, not abandoning, not either succumbing or leaving, but leaning in, letting our hearts be broken, healing each burning moment by balancing with the the moist and the cool and the dark of the great mysterious, as the Taoists called it, so that in each moment we are like Sujata bringing her bowl of rice milk to nourish what what is dying. We're like um, Guan Yin with her vase pouring a healing balm into our own heart minds, into each moment, into the world, over and over again. That's the third thing. That's the other possibility. And I think that's what the lunar countercurrent dharma is inviting us to do. Are we okay? Can I keep going for a bit? Yeah. So I think it's really important to emphasize that I'm not saying, you know, dark good, light bad. You know, this is not setting up another kind of duality where we're opposing darkness to light and saying, abandon the light, you know, enter the dark, uh, because that's just falling into the same kind of dualistic trap. We're very used in the Dharma to think of a light that is non-dualistic, that contains both the light and the dark. And what I've been um, sinking into is what if we flip that on its head and we think of a dark that contains, that is non-dualistic and contains both the light and the dark. Does it make a difference? If it's the non-dualistic dark holding light and dark rather than the non-dualistic light holding light and dark. Um... What we're talking about is not a abandon the light, move to the dark kind of thing, not a picking and choosing, but a kind of compensatory move, a move toward wholeness, a move toward including what has been excluded and is so incredibly important, particularly for our practice, because um, to... A great extent, a lot of the Dharma, and absolutely certainly the Koan way, um, works with us through lunar practices. Meditation, koans, you know, um, the, the work we do with dreams, all of that is our essentially lunar practices. And so it would be good to understand what it, what it is that they have to, to teach us and to be aware 
of our tendency to want to turn them into solar practices, by which I mean um, we want to make or have something. We want to attain something. We want to get something. We want to exert will. We want to make something happen. We want to. Um, we think if we just press hard enough or follow the rules stringently enough or you know whatever it is, that we'll get something out of it, which is a very non-lunar kind of move because... Um, in the countercurrent, we're always deconstructing. We're not acquiring. We're always um, taking things down, pulling things apart, letting things go, uh, dropping things, so that what was always true but held in the dark becomes apparent. But we're never going to find what is held in the dark and already true through acts of will. We're never going to do it by acquiring and gaining and getting. We're only going to do it by interrupting and putting down and letting go and listening and seeing what is already there, just not yet visible. Everything in the koans is not about making stuff conscious, but about allowing ourselves to be drawn into the dark and finding the wisdom of that place and eventually bringing it back into consciousness, but not kicking and screaming. Um, Okay, so I wanted to give a couple of examples of so far what I've come up with about why I think why I have the strong intuition that it matters if we think of the the dark as the non-dual thing holding both light and dark. And the first example I want to use is mindfulness. Um, you all know how I feel about that. <laughs> um, okay, so usually usually mindfulness in the West is presented in a in a kind of um, hyper-conscious way, you know. The assumption is that you can bring anything into consciousness and that the conscious mind can resolve any problem. So, so what we're just all endlessly trying to do is bring things into the, into the, the bright sphere of, of consciousness. Um, from a lunar perspective, if we bring that in, what that does is it leaves out the vast workings of what happens underground, what happens out of our sight and out of our control. So a mindfulness that includes both would be as mindful of what we cannot know, what we do not know, what is not yet conscious for us, and would respect that and see that as part of the situation, you know, as much as what we can know what it is possible for us to be conscious of. So maybe we should talk about it as heart mindfulness, to remind ourselves that it isn't just this movement into the light, this movement into consciousness, but it is also this awareness of the vast unknown that surrounds the very little bit of what we can know. Um, so the, the, the approach to mindfulness if we think of um, non-dualistic dark holding both light and dark, is less of trying to make things conscious and more of embracing with not knowing. Um, Allowing oneself not to be the miner with her headlamp, you know, illuminating the way, but allowing ourselves to be part of the particular not knowing that is unfolding in this moment with this shape. There is a this room is a vast not knowing in the shape of everybody in this room and this floor and the windows and the air coming in and all of that. And to hold, to hold not that we're going to try to see and understand and, and grasp as much as we can about it, but that we're going to continue to open ourselves to the not knowing of this time and place that's occurring in this shape. So here's an example of the example. Here's an example of, of doing mindfulness like that. Um, 
One of the, the most important and amazing and consequential shifts in um, cosmology recently is that people no longer talk about the laws of physics as applying to the whole universe. Because we're kind of beginning to think like maybe they don't necessarily. That what we thought were the laws of the whole are actually the laws of what we can kind of know about here. And so um, cosmologists are starting to talk about the local universe, by which they mean the the universe that seems to run by the physical laws we're kind of clear about. And there is no assumption that beyond the local universe, things are like that anymore. Um, at the same time, you know, there are these amazing discoveries about dark energy and dark matter, which says that about 94% of the universe is dark energy and dark matter, which leaves about 5 or 6%, which is what we ordinarily think of as ordinary matter and energy. So 94% of the universe is invisible to us and unknown to us and may never, their thinking, be known to us. Um, It is the visible world. It is the world of our sensory experience that is the anomaly in the universe, the thing that almost doesn't exist. And what we know, the little that we know about dark matter and dark energy, is that, that dark matter forms an invisible skeleton or invisible skeletons throughout the universe around which ordinary matter clusters. So galaxies cluster along these skeletons of dark matter. And then um, dark energy forms halos around these clusters of galaxies along the skeletons of, of dark matter. So you've got skeletons and halos surrounding everything that we can be aware of. Um, and I was reading an astronomer who called this the ultimate Copernican revolution. Not only are we not at the center of the universe, which is what Copernicus showed us, we're not even made of the same stuff as the vast majority of the universe. So um, the physicist David Bohm used to describe our existential situation as as everything that is visible and knowable to us, that six, five or six percent of the universe that is ordinary matter, is like the bubbles on the foam on the top of the waves that rise on the surface of an infinite ocean beneath us. And that ocean is completely invisible and unknowable to us. So, um, just for a moment, as you sit here, notice what you can know through your senses about this room, about your situation at the moment. So what you can know right here in this room, sitting here, that's 6% of it. That's 6%, not of the whole big deal, but 6% of this room, right here and right now. That's what you get, 6% through your senses. And now, see if without losing that 6%, don't shut your senses down, but see if you can drop down a little bit toward that 94%.
Isn't that what meditation is? Isn't meditation allowing ourselves to sink into the beginnings, the little very first parts of that 94%? And isn't that truer? Isn't it truer to say about the universe, 94% of it is invisible and unknown to us, than pretending that it's only what we can know? Isn't it truer to say that our experience of this room includes what we can feel in meditation? It's bigger, it includes more, and it's just closer to the truth. So that's what we're talking about. That's the move we're talking about making. Endlessly opening up to that larger thing. That truer thing. Okay, we're rounding for home. Um, I wanted to give another example of why I have this intuition that it matters that we think of the the dark as being the non-dual thing that holds the light in the dark. Um, This is something that that Wei Nung, the sixth ancestor, said. He said, the very passions are themselves enlightenment. So let's do the same kind of move, the one thing and another thing, and then neither of them works, so what's the third thing? The third thing is the lunar movement. Um, the, the very passions themselves, the, the things we're supposed to not have or get rid of or um, pretend we don't have or whatever it is, they themselves are enlightenment. So what, what is that about? Um, I think what Wei Nang is saying, I think what our tradition is saying, is that our task is not to indulge the passions or to believe unequivocally in what they tell us about the nature of the world, or, on the other hand, that's, the one, that's A, and then B is or to annihilate them, right? To get, cut them off at the knees, to get rid of them, to not feel them, to become passionless. It's neither of those things. So what's the third, what's the third move? Again, what if the, the lunar move, the thing that has sometimes been left out, is that we let our hearts be broken by compassion for them? What if we allow ourselves to feel the sorrow of those passions, the pain of those passions? We let our hearts be broken because that's what we need to awaken. That's what Wainang is saying. The very passions are themselves enlightenment. We must let our hearts be broken by them in order to awaken. It's the same thing Vimalakirti said. There is no other way to awaken except to walk the back streets of this world and to let your heart be broken. And this, spoken by Wei Nung, the most uncompromising and least sentimental of all the ancestors. Okay. Um, A couple of bedtime stories to take with you and see what happens with them. The first one is um, one of the oldest stories written down. And the second one is so new that most of it exists in the future. We don't know what's going to happen yet. So the old one, the one that's one of the first stories written down, is um, a, a Chinese description of the world. And in that description, there are two trees. There is a sun tree called Leaning Mulberry in the east of the world. And there is a moon tree 
in the west of the world whose leaves give off the red light of sunset. So in that eastern tree perch ten suns in the form of three-legged ravens. In the western tree perch twelve moons, sometimes in the form of toads or hares, H-A-R-E-S. Um, Ten and twelve, probably because in the old sacred calendar of the Shang dynasty, the, the, a month was made up of three ten-day weeks, and probably twelve moons, because uh, in, the, in their lunar calendar there were twelve moon cycles, tw- twelve months in the year. So, ten suns in the eastern tree, twelve moons in the western tree. And um, each of those had a mother, the mother of the ten sons, the mother of the twelve moons. And the mothers would take one sun at a time, one moon at a time, and bring them in a carriage across the sky. And so that was the passage of the sun through the day and the passage of the moon through the night. And each of the sun and the moon would be received in the opposite tree when the passage across the sky was complete. And there was a pool at the base of each of these trees where the mothers would bathe the trees when their journey was over. And the pools connected to the the great underground river, which is called the Land of the Yellow Springs or the Ghost River. So a kind of underworld place. And the sun and the moon, having made their passage across the sky, would go back to their home tree through the underworld, along the river, carried along the river. And then they would begin the ascent back into the tree, and while they were climbing back up the tree, the next sun would take off from the top, and the next moon would take off from the top. And this was the endless cycle of days and nights. Um, and what is so beautiful to me about this is the, the, the complete balance of it and the complete awareness that the sun's journey is not complete when it goes across the sky from tree to tree. It has to make that underworld journey through the river to get back home again. And the same with the moon. And there is this endless cycle repeating itself of this um, kind of perfect inclusion of the light and the dark the above ground and the below ground, what is um, blazingly visible at noonday and what cannot be seen in the caverns under the earth. Okay, so that's the old story. Here's the story, most of which has yet to happen. Um, In 1977, and still today, One of the most amazing things that human beings have ever done has been going on, and most of us are completely unaware of it. In 1977, two little satellites called Voyager 1 and 2 were um, launched into space, and their original mission was to check out the big gas planets on the other side of the solar system, on the outside of the solar system. And um, they fulfilled that mission. They sent back a lot of really cool pictures. But they were still doing fine. You know, they went, they went past Neptune and they were still going strong. And so everybody said, what the heck, keep going, don't stop. And so these two little um, silicon beings with less computing power than a digital watch apiece mm-hmm. took off, they turned the cameras off to save energy, turned away from the solar system and headed out toward the, the edge of what's called the heliosphere. The heliosphere is the the body of the solar system. Um, It's created by the the vast solar winds that get pushed out and um, create this kind of oval um, that that makes solar system space separate from interstellar space defined by these winds. So off they went, and they trundled along, and they sent back other kinds of readings, even though the cameras were turned off. They were still sensing electromagnetic fields and winds and things like that. And people really had no idea what they would find and how far they would get. So um, things went along as expected for years and years and years. 
And then all of a sudden, this amazing thing started to happen where everything went really chaotic. And the solar winds, the heliosphere is often described as a, like the skirts of a ballerina that are sort of spinning out, you know, in this kind of symmetrical way. But they hit this zone where the skirts were breaking up and sort of becoming ragged and there were these trails of, of the solar winds. And nothing was as was expected and, and the laws of physics started seeming not to apply so much anymore and things were really chaotic. And they sailed through that zone for a while and everybody thought, huh, well maybe that's the edge. You know, maybe that's what happens at the edge. And then an even more surprising thing happened, which is instantly, literally they went away for lunch and they came back. And when they came back from lunch, everything had gone completely silent and still. No more solar winds, no more electromagnetic fields, nothing going on, perfect silence. And that went on for a really long time. And they thought, oh, the edge of the heliosphere is not a line, it's a place. And they traversed that for a couple of years. And nobody knew what would, be, what would happen next. And just last December, um, NASA announced that the next thing had happened, which is they were still traveling through this silent, deep, still zone. But there were magnetic lines that um, still came out from the sun, from the heliosphere, moving out. But now there were magnetic lines coming from interstellar space in, and they were connecting. And so Voyager is following these magnetic lines that are the place that the solar system meets the universe. The universe came to get us. The universe came to open up a road into interstellar space. So, without um, clunking heavily down on um, metaphor, (laughs) let me just say that in the search for, in the quest for, in the journey to the most beloved. It's really good to get to know the solar system. It's really good to get to know, you know, our heart minds and our habits and what we do and what the world is like around us. That's a beautiful thing. And it's really good not to stop there. It's really good to keep going into that place where everything starts falling apart and it gets really crazy and nothing you thought pertains anymore and you don't know how long it's going to go on and you don't know what it's going to do and you don't know if the spacecraft is going to rattle apart or whether it's going to survive. You have no idea, but it's good to keep going. And it's really good to get to that zone where everything gets really still and really deep and really quiet That deep samadhi is a beautiful place to be. And it's not the end. Because the universe will come to get us. The universe will throw open roads in that silence, in that stillness, and offer us the invitation of an infinite voyage out as far as we can go. And my hunch is that that's where the most beloved will be found. So let us not stop. Let us keep going into the vast and the dark and the as yet unknown. And let us see what we discover about the Most Beloved. And what we discover over a lifetime of what it's like to hold our lives like that. And those of you who are willing, let us dig wells into that underground river. Let us bring that healing bomb up to a world on fire and let us offer that to ourselves, to each other 
and to the larger communities of which we are a part. I can think of nothing I'd rather be doing. And I hope some of you will decide that there's nothing you'd rather be doing too. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.